If you're persistent, sometimes it's because you know you've got something. Chairs suck. I know this because I'm in a chair and they suck. And I talk to other people in chairs and they suck. I don't need some guy on Dragon's Den to tell me that it's a good business or a bad business. They don't know. And I think that's where I've always come from. From Escape Collective, this is Overnight Success, the podcast about the entrepreneurs, the personalities, and the passionate people who make up the sport of cycling and the stories behind the icons they've built. Bowhead is a business that's only about five years old, but it's been 20 years in the making. It's a brand that many of you probably haven't even heard of before, and I truly hope that despite this, you will listen to this episode, because this is one of the most inspiring stories that I've come across while making this podcast. Christian Bag has been a lifelong adrenaline junkie who loved mountain biking and snowboarding. Christian broke his back in 1996 while snowboarding, and needless to say, his life changed forever. That didn't hold him back from living life to its fullest, though. He quickly adapted by racing wheelchairs and cross-country skiing. A machinist by trade, Christian couldn't help thinking about how his adaptive equipment for the sports that he loved kept failing him and how he could make it better. Jump ahead to now, 2023. Christian's company, Bowhead, has the most innovative adaptive mountain bikes that the world has ever seen and has given people with disability a new level of passion they could never enjoy before. So I grew up in Calgary and uh, I was like a really small kid until high school. I shot up like a foot one summer and that coincided with falling in love with mountain biking. So I was, point being, I was like a really gangly, awkward teenager, as many are. <laughs> and I think the falling in love with biking worked for me because I didn't like team sports, like didn't work. They worked, but I wasn't good at them. Uh Um, Whereas biking relied, it was pretty new back at that point. A lot of it relied on your willingness to risk things. Yeah. Whereas like if if you're playing basketball or tennis or football, it wasn't about risk. It was about skill. Mm. But in the early days of mountain biking, you get pretty far with risk. And so I think that, (laughs) I think that worked for me. Are we talking in the 90s, uh, late 90s? Yeah, early yeah. early 90s. Yeah. Early 90s, right, right. So mountain biking was very different then, hey? Yeah, more like hiking trails. But it was like there's still lots of steep stuff. There wasn't a lot of jumping or anything like that. But it was sort of, it was pretty new. My mountain bike, I, I, like I remember when front shocks came out and I got front shocks and Trek DDS2s. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. And like, and you cut your bars like as narrow as you could. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was pretty good. I was a good mountain biker. And so that was my, that sort of coincided with grade 12 and finishing school. And then what did you want to do with your life? And I think I was actually signed up for, it was Mount Royal College at the time for like business administration because I wanted to have a, a bike company. That was my goal. Is that right? Um yeah, I think I got the like we're in my shop right now. There's like a picture somewhere. Beaver bikes. It was going to be beaver and, bikes. Uh, yeah, and then my and my dad had been a machinist for like his whole life, but he when he immigrated to Canada, he ended up at Sate, 
And so he was the head of manufacturing and automation at SAIT. And he got a call from an ex-student who was running the shop at the University of Calgary, like the engineering shop, and they were looking for an apprentice. And so I had no real, other than this business administration, which I really wasn't that interested in other than owning a bike company. I got offered this job or I went and applied for the job to be an apprentice machinist. And I hadn't like, even though that's what my dad did, I had really very little like exposure to it for my whole life. Like I didn't, I didn't build stuff with my dad really. Like he, like we had a little shop in the basement. I made like this, that, and the other, you know, birdhouses, shit like that. Nothing, nothing really big. Um, and so I can't, it was kind of, it was all brand new. It was like, here's an opportunity to get a job. I wasn't a superstar in school academically. And so I was like, sure. Yeah, let's do that. So that was my, that was the beginning of like, how do I, how did I learn how to build something or design something? What was this job at the University of Calgary? Did you ever build your own bike? Uh, no, I made no. a bike uh, hub, a front hub. I think that was it. For my bike parts actually a front i built my own wheel and then it was a lot of riding bikes yeah uh, and then working at the u and it, which was amazing like it was a really good job for a 18 year old like kind of a free education in the most interesting parts of engineering say there's no equations no math no this no that just i just got to work on the projects that the profs were doing or the students were doing and actually make them um, and then be guided by, you know, the, whether it's the engineering professors or like my boss, Rob Scorey, um, who's machinist, like being taught how to make stuff. And so I did really get a good, I got a, a super good education, how to make stuff and really varied as opposed to being a machinist at some manufacturing or company in Calgary that would have probably been very oil field. And then you're, you're, you're sort of production this was just a really whether it's diving blocks for phys ed or little things that tear bunnies apart for biomed or you know rolls royce engines for tar sands like there's there's just this huge breadth of things that i got to work on two years into my apprenticeship there that's when i broke my back that was really when the the like acknowledgement of the value of what I'd learned became clear to me because all of a sudden I I think like I probably didn't jump into making bike stuff because there was so many awesome bike things and I just Mm. I took the easy path of riding them yeah like that's that's ultimately what I love to do Christian broke his back in 1996 after a snowboarding accident while doing a big air competition. He was just 20 years old. I just think I was like a lot of young, young people, young men. I was just really stupid and risky and I got bit. Um, But it wasn't like super surprising to the people at work or my family or my friends that this happened. I mean, it was surprising in that they didn't have any idea what, I was in for and like what paralysis was. They weren't like, oh, that's part for the course, but they weren't like, oh my God, I can't believe it happened to him. <laughs> and then what was your um your, your thinking after that significant life event happened? Was there a, a period of 
I don't know, mourning's the right word or, 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 uh, well, recovery, I imagine. And, but when yeah. did, well, you're like, you're young. I think having been through it now and, and like having been used the chair for 27 years, I've seen so many people get injured. It seems like if you get injured later on in life, I find it as a generality, I think it's much more difficult. Like if you're 40 and you break your back, I think you're in for a rough ride, a rougher right. ride, ironically. Um, but when you're 20, it's like, you don't really know who you are or what you're going to do, but mm. nor do your friends. Uh, so like, it's kind of the sink or swim style of, of learning to deal with an injury in that, like, if we went, if my friends went to a bar, dollars to donuts, they were upstairs every time. Like they, mm. they wouldn't pick downstairs, but if you're 40 and you break your back and your friends go to a bar or restaurant, they're making sure it's accessible. They've got like it mapped out. Like they're, they're looking out for you, right. but 20 year olds are just looking out for themselves, period. Huh. Right. Like, and they don't know what's going on. So you kind of, I think there is obviously a, a, a morning time, but you're also like, you got to you got to keep up. Like if you've got, mm. I had amazing friends, right? So I didn't get, I didn't sort of get left behind by my friends. They didn't like move on. They were still my friends, but they were, they were still just a group of 20 year olds that were going to ca carry on with their lives. Yeah. So it was, it was pretty good that way. And where did the recreation piece fit into that? Well, so like the, I mean, my friends mountain biked and snowboarded and, climbed and did all these things and like the girl I was dating and like the wanting to date girls like you know as a young man then maybe now like you stay busy to to impress girls right like you do things to impress girls or I did and it worked right like that's that was my I was I wasn't particularly you know witty or funny or any of these things but I could risk you know, my, my neck. And that seemed to be the impressive thing at that time. Huh. You know, maybe they saw it differently, but it's like, if that's, if that's what works and I don't have a huge repertoire in my bag <laughs> of tricks, then that's what you continue doing. So like, so finding, finding sports to do sport was like my avenue to whether it was recreation or social or finding a girl who wanted to hang out with me. It sport was really that was my hub of, of linking all these things together. And it made sense to me. Like I, I, I understood sport. It made me feel good. You know, no 20 year old really wants to work. So it's not like, well, I got to get back to work. It's like, well, if I don't have to work. Then I should find something fun to do. And so this continued after you broke your back, uh, you, you just adapted and continued doing sport. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. And I mean, I'm sure like, because we have young people who work for us now at Bowhead and it seems like kids seem more mature now, certainly than I was. Mm. Um, like we have 20 year olds or 25 year olds working for us. And I'm like, Oh my God, like <laughs> I, I was a disaster. Like, like I wouldn't every Monday I would have been hung over. And then you think like, well, you know, did I just have a alcohol problem with all my friends? And I, I think the answer is probably yes. So it was also like a sneaky, a sneaky way to, you know, often you can deal with trauma with substance. If you're 40 and you drank like a 20 year old, 
back then you would have an alcohol problem mm. and be called out. But if you're 20 and you drink like a 20 year old, then you're kind of like, no one notices. Yeah. Like it's... I was just partying with my friends. Yeah. Yeah. So I think looking back, I probably dealt with things in equally as unhealthy way as you can, but it just, it blended in, but you still got up, you're 20. So you still get up on Monday morning and go do the sport you want to do. <laughs> or go and, to and work or whatever. How, how did you find the sports you wanted to do? I mean, I've seen videos of you um, you skiing in um, mm-hmm. adapted ways. And, yeah, and was there was, a- the first thing I did was wheelchair racing. So like marathons and 10Ks. I used to go to like right out of the hospital, I used to go to Lindsay Park, like still with a back brace on and do laps of the of the track upstairs, like a little 200 meter track with one of my friends. And so he would, I would get out onto the mats and then he would jump in my chair and like, we had like races basically. So I had amazing friends that were, they were just young. Like they were, we were having fun. We were legitimately having fun. Um, and then a guy named Duff Gibson, who's turned out to be a, an old Canadian Olympian. He was like a personal trainer there at the time. And so he saw me and came up and was like, Hey, have you ever thought about wheelchair racing? Cause I think he was involved with the sport at that point. And so that's what got me into wheelchair racing. And then from there, that's actually probably one of the healthiest random things that could have happened to me was getting into it. Cause really early I started to travel for it. And then I would meet other wheelchair racers from around the mm. world, which were just people with lives that, didn't focus on their injury anymore no more than i focus on mine now so like you're young you're newly injured and you know you're like well this sucks or that sucks and they're like i got no patience to listen to this kid like i've got kids i've got taxes i've got a job like i really just don't give a shit about your sad story because i got the same sad story like move Mm -hmm. along Mm -hmm. um and so i did really quickly at that that was kind of my mentality was just like oh they don't care about it. They're worried about the things I used to be worried about. So there you go. Through the racing community, Christian met a gentleman named Jeff Adams. Jeff is a six-time world champion in wheelchair sports with three Olympic gold medals and many other accolades to his name. Jeff and Christian embarked on a business together with the aim to create a better wheelchair. In 2007, Jeff and Adam partnered with Cervelo, the bike brand, to launch Marvel Wheelchairs, a company with a mission to produce a much more adjustable wheelchair than what was already out there. Three years later, the founders were pushed out of Marvel in Cervelo's messy period where they had to sell the company to Dutch conglomerate Pawn. Not to give up, Christian and Jeff appeared on the TV show Dragon's Den, where entrepreneurs pitched their ideas to a panel of potential investors. There's a similar version of the show called Shark Tank in countries such as US and Australia. They pitched Icon Wheelchairs, which aimed to make a more adjustable, capable, comfortable chair. Next up, three entrepreneurs who think they can revolutionize the wheelchair business with their state-of-the-art design. Hello, Dragons. Thank you very much for letting us come on the show. My name is Jeff Adams. I'm from Toronto. This is my business partner, Christian Bag. We're representing Icon Wheelchairs, and we're here to ask you for $500,000 for a 20% equity stake in our company. 
the Icon Chair is not only lighter and more agile, it's also adjustable, changing with the user's body. Let's get to the numbers. How quick are you going to get to market? We're probably six months away from making our first sale. It's going to be a couple of years before you're starting to sell in volume, no? No, it's going to be nine months before your next sale, right? Well, in volume. No, no uh, it'll be about six. Okay, but why is it worth worth two and a half million dollars today? Because it's going to be worth 20 million in five years. Mm. The problem is the first year you break even under the best scenario. We don't mean 100 chairs the first year, 200 the second year, 300 the next. We mean 100, 200, 400. Geometric growth, I get it. It's very hard to see this being worth two and a half million dollars. This is a very, very rich valuation. Today. Yeah. It needs, it needs an amount of money up front to do the job properly, to set the company up for success down the road. I, I struggle with the value. I wouldn't give you the money at that valuation today. So I'm going to be out just based on that. I'm struggling in the same circumstances. It's just valuation. You know... I would put a corporate valuation of north of a million dollars on it, but I struggle at two, and I struggle more at two and a half. And, uh, you know, if you rethink your valuation metrics ever, uh, find me. But I'm out for now. The Dragons wouldn't have it, but Jeff and Christian did get Icon off the ground with a big medical supplier investor who later pulled the pin on them. That partnership between Jeff and Christian didn't last. Like, I don't pay a lot of attention to what happens in the wheelchair world, uh, whether it's recreation or actual wheelchairs. I've really just focused on what I want to do and how I want to do it. And early, in the early days, I was just very focused on that mechanical side of it. And like any, like anybody in, in the early, in the beginning of your career, you're not nearly as wise and as good as you are towards the tail end of your career. And so those early attempts at chairs missed the mark a lot. In some ways, they were really innovative, but they missed it both from my end mechanically, certainly in business aptitude, partnerships, production, operations, all the shit I know about now are the things that were just destined to fail then. Hmm. Um, And so you take these you take these experiences and either you get lucky, you know, some people get lucky or some people are good. Um, and when they're young, they make the right decisions and they, they come out on top or you move on from failures and you try again. And that would be, that's certainly more my, if you had to describe the type of person I am, just a, a persistent motherfucker. I just, I don't know. I, I just keep, I just keep going with things, maybe out of apathy for not wanting to change. When you're young and you're persistent, maybe you like you you keep going, you know, if you make mistakes, you keep you keep making those same mistakes. And then as you get older, you're like, oh, I you know, I might just like I'm gonna die one day. I better hurry up and solve this <laughs> problem and and do a good job of it, or I'm gonna waste my entire life you know, trying to figure this out. Sometimes if you're persistent, then sometimes it's because you know, you've got something right. Like mm. you, and I think that's where I've always come from is like chairs suck. I know this cause I'm in a chair and they suck. And I talk yeah. to other people in chairs and they suck. So like, I don't need some guy on dragons then to tell me 
that it's a good business or a bad business. Like, fuck them. They don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I don't need Phil and Gerard to like, they, they were in it. Obviously they were in it for the money and that it ended pretty like they ended up turning the company insolvent. There was like a, then it was very business oriented, right? Like it was, it was like a, a company grab. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they, cause they did see sign. And so you learn from these things, but I've never in, in all the business dealings that I've had where they go south, it's never made me think, oh, maybe this isn't a thing. Because mm. at the root, it's a wheelchair and they suck. And I know I can make one better. Yeah. Uh, you know, I definitely, at the end of all, like from Marvel to Icon, when I met, you know, maybe I'm jumping you ahead in your questions, but when I met Dean, my business partner now, doing bikes, I was like, I'm never going to make another wheelchair again. Like, like really? I am done with this. I mean, other than for myself, like I was just yeah. sick of it. I was sick of that industry and bikes were so much fun, but like there's my wheelchair over there, um, which we'll be making. This is your basement uh, workshop you're speaking from. Yeah. 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 Cool. So I do, I still do R and D down here Yeah, because I like it, but yeah, but now, you know, now we're doing it from a place of like a positive, healthy partnership and an amazing team and even if the wheelchair that we come up with isn't great we'd still succeed because we have like amazing operations and amazing shipping and amazing like we just have an amazing company now Mm. where you can pump a thing through it and that's what i never had before there was no amazing company behind any of these there was i think some really good ideas innovative ideas in the chair but there was never anyone who knew what the hell was going on with a company. After Christian's partnership with Jeff Adams broke down, Christian took on a couple jobs. One at a hospital called the Tom Baker Cancer Center at Foothills Hospital in Calgary, where he worked as a machinist building various things for patients. He also worked at Alberta Park Visitor Center in the Rocky Mountains. All this while he was building his first bowhead just for himself. I had an inclusion role, and so I was supposed to be, I don't even know, like trying to come up with inclusion-y things within Alberta Parks, but the reality was is that I worked mainly at visitor centers, telling like able-bodied people about hikes and scrambles. It was so ridiculous, because I'm like... (laughs) And this is pre-bike, so I can't even go to these places. Like, I haven't, and I'm like, and someone's like, comes into the visitor center and like, yeah, there's a tree across the trail on Blueberry. And I was like, well, did you step over it? Like, I don't know <laughs> what the fuck your problem is. Like, you're out in the mountains to adventure. Like, do yeah, you think yeah. like, like, is that what stopped the people from like finding the new world in America? A tree across the trail? Like, holy, um, so, so were, I, you were great at customer a, service or cu- the, engaging I'm that way, were you? notoriously terrible at customer service. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, even now, I'm not, uh, You're not the I'm guy. not allowed to, I'm not <laughs> the guy, no. Um, but so I spent, so, you know, unbeknownst to Parks, I spent most of the time in the back room designing the bike, whether it was on paper in my head or, and kind of, you know, I'd, every now and then I would just put a sign on the door that said like closed. And then they, <laughs> until they, there was enough angry phone calls from 
visitors to parks. I'm like, you're in the mountains. Like, just go. Yeah. Like, how do you need me to tell you the weather? Like, it's like straight above your head. Like, just look. Like, it's sunny. So I could go (laughs) have fun. Um, So I, I really, I didn't love that job at all, actually. So parks wasn't for me. There were some great people. But even now, like our electric bike, the Reach, you legally can't ride that in Alberta parks, which blows my mind. How come? Because it's like uh, too much wattage or something. Right. Does it fall under e-bike rules? Yeah, it's not an e-bike people? though. It's not a, yeah, I think so. I mean, to them, it's an e-bike. Yeah, um, yeah. To a 12-year-old with cerebral palsy, it's not an e-bike. That's mm-hmm. just how they get around outside. Mm-hmm. So they're just saying like, but you can mountain bike at 30K an hour. But yeah. unless if you're not like getting cardio, then the mountains are not for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's it blows my mind. Um, but that being said, the only time I've ever had problems in Alberta parks on our bikes is when there's been like film shoots. Like I did a film shoot for Tourism Alberta. And so once it gets official enough that someone high enough up that those eight guys in the room deciding where you can base jump from, uh, once it gets to them, then it's no. But if you bump into a conservation officer on the trail, they're super stoked. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there are rational people, but once, but at the highest levels of bureaucracy, they can't wrap their head around a quadriplegic wanting to go to the mountains. So you're in parallel building the, the now bowhead, uh, a bike, for yourself, you're working at uh, Parks Alberta and at uh, Tom Baker. Yeah. Right. Kind of all with the mission of building this bike? Yeah, with no, like, no days off. Yeah. Right. And, and with, uh, that's, and then my, we were pregnant with my son, Oliver, at this point. So it was like, I couldn't have all the risk that I used to have with a mm-hmm. company like Marvel with where you're, you're making dirt. And a bunch of people are stealing all the ownership of the company. And it was like, I'm going to have a kid. Like I need, I need a real job. So that's where parks and the hospital came from. Got it. But I like, but I never, I never fully gave up on, on myself. And so what were the requirements? What was the inspiration? The, um, what was the need that you were fulfilling for yourself in building the bike? When I did the first wheelchair, striker chair i worked with a friend of mine ken frayne who's an engineer and he was also a climber and we had a climbing wall at the shop and so i started climbing uh, just like bouldering like hand over hand and i really i loved it i fell in love with it um because unlike a lot of every other sport i did required some piece of equipment that i would then become infatuated with and like couldn't stop thinking about and trying to make better but climbing is like chalk like you can't (laughs) <laughs> I couldn't make the chalk any better. So I would just go have fun. Yeah. I got stronger, pretty strong. And I wanted to go, I went to grassy lakes in Canmore because there's, there's actually really good climbing there. It used to be coral billions of years ago or hundreds of millions of years ago. And so they're deep pockets and it's overhanging. So it was perfect for me to climb because it's like pretty good holds, but still overhanging. So my body would just sort of dangle, but getting there was tough. Ken would mm. piggyback me down from, you could go from the top or, which was like a pretty short hiking trail, but pretty steep. So he'd piggyback me. And if you did it 10 times, you'd probably crash twice. 
but uh or you'd come up from the bottom up like a access road that was closed off so you'd like a hiking trail mm. and if you did that then like and i would do it in my chair my wheelchair and then you're toast by the time you get to the top um so then like you're how are you going to climb if your arms are dead so originally the bike was like i need something so that i can get up to grassy lakes to climb yeah after my first time climbing at grassy i never climbed there again really so the bike took me other places but that was the impetus behind it yeah wow was, and what was the design yeah. how did it look how did it function terrible <laughs> to both those questions well that means you um, progressed then <laughs> yeah we definitely yeah. progressed no it was like it was all just sort of theories about like because if you're if you're cranking a so they were both they were all like hand pedal like hand yeah. cycle then and so if you're steering and transmitting power and braking and doing everything with your hands then you've got you, there's a lot going on and so there was one where actually the, the first one it steered by leaning my body side to side so the seat was the steering but you ended up in these like speed wobbles that would just oh, yeah. then like shake your body until you ultimately crashed um or and then or if you ended up on a side slope and you leaned then it would turn you and then you're turning somewhere you don't want to go and then to to get it to go straight you'd have to lean the way that it wanted you to fall and there's just a lot of falling involved. yeah right so the there's just a bunch of crappy bikes because and but it, what it really highlighted was that nature isn't flat and trails aren't flat and if you design something that requires it to be flat then you don't have anything um so there was kind of like a pause on the bike side because it just wasn't working this podcast is fully funded by our members at escape collective in fact all of our content on our website and our podcast network is 100% supported by our members who believe that cycling media should be independent from the sport and industry we cover and that we should exist to serve you rather than live or die by our ability to be a platform for the sole purpose of selling you more stuff. If you enjoy this podcast or any of our other work and believe in our mission of independence, please go to escapecollective.com slash join and become a member today. Thank you for your support. At this point, Christian gave up on designing a wheelchair bike and found another way to enjoy the outside world. He took up cross-country skiing. I did love it. And it was my way to get around the world outside. Um, you know, snow makes bumps and creeks and logs and everything smooth and flat. And yeah. so I did that and I had planned a trip to the nascent huts at Mount Assiniboine. There's at Lake Magog. There's a, there's a place you can go. And yeah. I'd been there in in junior high, I think actually. But I went with my girlfriend at the time and then two other friends. And as the story goes, like it just you go from like groom trail to then like more backcountry cross-country skiing where it's soft and it was bucketing snow at the time, but it was still fun. And we had like about 12k to go to get to a halfway hut near a ranger's cabin. And 
every tree we went by, almost every tree, uh, I would fall into because it was it was just deep snow and they would so they would get to the point where they'd like ski up and get like in the tree well hole and then i'd try and go by and they'd like body check me to try and keep me out of the hole and see if i'd pop out the other side and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't so we were going like i don't like a half a k an hour type thing we were out there forever um to the point where i ditched my ski they took it and i scooched on my butt like 2k to this cabin alone because they were like freezing it it got pretty sketchy and then the next day we woke up to like way more snow we headed off towards Assiniboine and then there's a pass that you have to go up and it was just it was clear that this wasn't gonna happen I wanted to like I was like okay you guys go ahead and I'll dig a snow cave here and and my girlfriend at the time was like no like that's idiotic (sighs) You and I, we'll head back to the halfway hut and then our friends continued on and we'll get them to call for help. But it was this realization that like, well, now like I can't bike because I have these crappy bikes that just like shake my body and throw me off the trail. And now the skiing has gotten limiting because if it's not groomed, I'm like it. I'm falling into tree wells everywhere and I can't get to where I want to go. And that was when I was racking my brain for this shared problem between summer and winter of uneven trails Uh and side slopes. Really, it was a side slope problem. That was it. Like if I could, if I could go by a tree well and have one ski go down and one ski stay high while I stay level, then we're good. Then I can get to a Cinnaboyne. Everything was really my whole like, innovative process is very goal oriented for immediate problems. And so yeah, as the story goes, two things happened when I got back from that trip was I did figure out a way to to have a ski stay high and one go low. And then I married the girl that hauled me out of the tree wells. There you um, go. Yeah. So so good things. So it worked. My whole sport to impress women. But isn't that an interesting, interesting um, combination of skill sets and hobbies and to to make that happen and how unlikely, hey, because I imagine most people would have just said this isn't going to happen and I'm going to do something else. I just, yeah, like I think you've seen, like if you pay attention to anything in the sport world, like you see so much innovation or in the bike world specifically, that's where I really loved playing. But like, like equipment has just gotten so good and maybe I would have been deterred if adaptive equipment was like that. If it, if it was on this path of like continuing to get better and then I tried something and it didn't work, I'd have been like, Oh, I guess this doesn't work. But you're looking at this industry that's just not even trying and you're like, Mm. well, if it tried a little bit, I bet, I bet we could do it. Like, yeah. So, you know, we built the Panama canal. We've had people on the moon, like got to be able to go by a fucking tree with one ski low and one ski high. Like this is not rocket science. So, and so, yeah, and you can, so I made the ski, which was then against the rules. If I wanted to race, yeah. God forbid I can turn. Yeah. So I had the ski and it totally worked and it was amazing. And my wife and I cross country skied and, had a great time and the bike still sucked and one day i was looking at the ski and looking at this shitty bike in the shop 
And I was like, oh, if I just turn, if I just take this frame from this ski that totally does what I want it to do and put it on a bike, you know, instead of your poles planting you to the ground, you've got a little handle and a handlebar and, and sort of it came together really quickly. And then one day, and I was working at parks when I, I made it, made it down here. And then I, I went to work and called my friend Bushy, who's like a biker, like not a bicycle biker, but a biker biker. And he's hilarious. And, uh, and I was like, come out to Bragg Creek and we'll ditch. I'll lock up the visitor center and you have to go try this bike. And so I had like my parks uniform on and this like crappy road bike helmet. And we're on Moose Mountain Fire Road, just like ripping, doing like 70K an hour. It totally worked. It straight leaned, away it did everything. Every, yeah, right away. It wow. was like a eureka moment. It only had one back brake, no suspension. It was total rust bucket garbage, but it worked. And did you just Im- immediately see a business in front of you here, or was this still a game changer for me? Yeah, game changer for me. Yep. Right. Yeah, certainly at that point. I mean, within that few hours, it kind of did turn into realizing what I had, because then Bushy was like, okay, we're going back to the top, but like, it's not your turn anymore. Like, it's my turn. Like, like I've got right? like a badass dude who can do whatever he wants. And he's like, I want to ride that bike. Like that thing is cool. Tell me the, uh, maybe if it was a Eureka moment or a progression of things that happened that made you thought that this might actually be a commercial endeavor. Well, it was when a young girl from Easter Seals Camp Horizon had heard about this crazy bike and this crazy guy. Cause I was working for parks, which, uh, the, the elbow Valley visitor center is like, down the road from camp from Easter Seals Camp Horizon, the disabled kids camp. Right. And they were having their annual fundraiser, the Banded Peak Challenge, where a bunch of able-bodied people run, bike, whatever, get to the top of Moose Mountain. They get sponsored by their friends. The money goes to the camp and and everybody's happy. Um, yeah. but she wanted to go on this and had heard about this piece of equipment. I lent got her fit up and lent it to her. And she gets, she, we kind of connected all of her friends that, that could walk, uh, you know, with like dog sled style to the front of this. Cause it was just gravity at this point. And they towed her up to the top of the mountain. And I waited at the bottom and hoping that this little girl is not just like this bike's not going to break and just leave her up there. And she's stuck. But uh, but she had a great time. She had control. She had a brake and she had a steering wheel. And she she got for the first time. You know, she'd been on things like this, but she would have been in like a like a chariot, like a like a big baby jogger type thing. But this was the only time she got to. You know, even though she's being pulled, she could pull the brake and lurch everyone to a stop, and and she could look at what she wanted to look at. Um, and it, even though it was rusty and gnarly looking it was still cool like it still didn't look like a piece of adaptive equipment it was like don't you didn't know what it was but it wasn't lame it was neat um (laughs) and so she uh, had a great time coming down moose mountain on this a great time with like all of her friends she told her mom it was the best day of her life and that was when and the feelings i got from that was like oh like i 
I've been doing this for myself. This has been a selfish endeavor to to get to do the things that I love to do. But yeah, like maybe this is a business. Like, and so it was the first, like it had no name. I think it was the Parks Explorer I named it. <sighs> but it it wasn't really a company. It was just me not working at parks and tricking them, you know, like yeah, me locking yeah. myself in a room. And then, but they... So ironically, they did take a lot of credit for this. Really? So yeah. So Camp Easter Seals wanted they bought one from me, which I made down here in this basement. They ended up buying Your first a few, customer. I think first customers. So they they got I went out and found, I don't know, I think I had a friend whose sister worked at um the Calgary Airport. And so the first one was paid for by the Calgary Airport Authority. Or no, the first one was paid for by a company called Vagogo which my friend Bushy was working for. Uh, they were like a cryptocurrency exchange. Really? And he convinced them <laughs> wow. to fund, because they had tons of money, right? At the time. <laughs> At the time, yeah. Because Bushy was, uh, he did their cybersecurity because he'd actually been in jail. He's a bit of a criminal. And if you're going to have someone do security, it's better that they understand the criminal mind. Yeah. Um, but he's also a, a super warm heart. So he convinced them to buy a bike for Easter Seals. So that was the first one and they used it. And the handoff parks had like CBC there and made sure I was in my parks uniform and no all the shit way. I wasn't allowed to do. They, they got their piece, uh, <laughs> but I don't care. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. I was still, no one was stopping me from doing what I was doing. Um, and I'm sure they all knew. So it went from one and then Calgary Airport Authority funded another one for Easter Seals Camp Horizon. And then they kept like, cause they would use them on these. So then more than one kid could go up on the, the Banded Peak Challenge and, and be part of it. So that was, that was how it started. And like each bike was different. Like it was evolving. Every single bike was evolving a lot um, and changing a lot. Um, so these these early companies that I convinced to fund them were really paying for the R and D. How did you start inching towards building more, selling more and, and phasing well, yourself out of that job? Yeah. So that's when, so then it was quite a long process of phasing myself out of jobs. Cause there's, if you've ever started a company, I think you have, you don't make a lot of money. In no. the beginning, in fact, you make negative money, lots of negative <laughs> money, and uh, and so to have another job is just funds you, allows you to to do this thing that ultimately is probably not a financially intelligent thing to do. So I kept that job and kept commuting, and the the rehab center for if you get if you broke your back or had a spinal cord injury or any other injury. You go to the Foothills Hospital, and that's above the cancer center. So it was it was a guy, as Adam's story went, there's a guy, um, J.P. Middleton, who is a volunteer firefighter and like landowner and stuff in Banff, and he had broken his back, and he was at the rehab center, and he could see me in the winter commuting to and from work, like my little light, like buzzing yeah. around. And he came down and found me and was like, Hey, I want to, I want to buy one of those bikes. And I was like, well, you know, there's other companies that make, I wasn't really 
because at this point I was still, I still had the mindset of being the the designer and builder, just like I had in the previous wheelchair companies. Mm. I hadn't really, I didn't really have the confidence from a business side. I was like, well, I'll, I'll teach you about the other bikes and you can make up your mind. And he's like, well, are the other bikes as good as this? I was like, no, they're terrible. <laughs> he's like, well, then I want one of these bikes. And I was like, like, I just, I didn't want to, I didn't want to sell this guy on anything. Like I, yeah. I wasn't a salesperson. Um, and I didn't, me, I just didn't have the confidence to be like, yeah, you should totally get one. But he did. He was like, why, if you wouldn't get the other ones and you're doing what I want to be doing, I'm going to get that. And so it was really nerve wracking because I'd only ever traditionally too, like the people that had used the bike and thought it were really good were people that had been injured for X amount of time. So would have had, if they were bike cyclists, they would have had that taken away from them and not been able to do it. And then this allows them to, to have something like it. Yeah. Um, but here's a guy who three months earlier was mountain biking at a high level. And then the next thing he was going to do was ride this thing that I'd spent a better part of my adult life designing. Like, what if he didn't like it? And like, and, and why would he like it? Like, it's not a mountain bike. Like mm. he's, he's going to be bummed out, but he's broken his back and dropped 10 grand on this shitty bike. Um, but it was my sister was like, the bike's awesome. And like, you spent 20 years of your life trying to design it and you love it. And imagine if you could have had that, like the day you left the hospital, like, like think of the time you spent wishing you could have done that. And I was like, yeah, totally. And he got it and he loved it to the point where like a month after he got it, he was talking about ordering another one. And I was like, why? He's like, because I can't imagine if this one breaks down, not having one. All right. <laughs> Holy shit. JP really likes the bike. Um, so that was, so that was, he was, he was actually customer number three. Customer number two was this guy, Seth McBride, who was a quadriplegic from Eugene, Oregon who had seen like the shitty Instagram videos that I was putting up. And, uh, and he drove like 15 hours from Eugene to here, got on it. He's a quad. So like, there was nothing really to accommodate like his level of function in his hands. He like tipped over after four feet, tipped over four feet after that, and four feet after that. till we got up to the dog park near my house where he proceeded to tip over like another 20 times but in between those tips he got where he could go like 30 feet or 40 feet and he traversed a side slope at the dog park and i'm thinking like it's just not it's not for him like mm. i i feel bad but it's not i don't feel right that taking this person's money yeah. and clearly he doesn't want it like he's just had a disastrous time and we get back to my house and he's like, I'll, I'll take one. I was like, well, why, why would you want this? He's like, cause in those, there was like 40 feet where I did something that I could never do. And wow. if I get better at it, cause I'm, cause he's a persistent motherfucker. 
I, in two years, I'll go a kilometer or two or 10. Amazing. So he just saw the light. He's like, yeah, I'll, I'll take it. And then this past, this past spring, he did the dual Solomon downhill race at the Sea Otter Classic. No way. By now, Christian had sold three of his bikes. And his good fortune, at the same time, he was reconnected with an old industry acquaintance, a gentleman by the name of Dean Miller. Dean had seen success in the software industry in the 80s and 90s. And in Christian's words, he was a very driven and entrepreneurial personality. Dean had a cousin in Canada who had broken his neck while diving into shallow water, and Dean took it upon himself to get into the adaptive mobility market by way of distributing wheelchair and rehab products. This, he was extremely successful at. And by this point, it was perfect timing for Dean and Christian to discuss a partnership in the formation of Bowhead. We had a phone conversation, and Dean can talk, and we talked for like two hours and decided we were going to do it. And what did you so see in Dean that he brought to the table that could, uh, I guess, unlock this business? It, well, because I, so at this time, like I still, I still knew I needed, or I thought I needed a partner still. Like I didn't, I didn't have the confidence from a business set, like standpoint that I was anything more than a designer. Right. So I was looking for a business partner. You um, weren't gun shy also, with business partners at this point? You still thought... It was right. No, I still, yeah. I mean, the ones I had had were pretty out there, just to say the least, from a personality standpoint. So, taking what I had learned and removing some of those traits, I thought, you know, one yeah. could do it again. I also, I didn't like, I didn't have the money to make a real go of it, mm. and I wanted to do it. So, mm. I, I'm, I am by nature a very risk tolerant individual as well. Yeah. I just thought, yeah, let's, let's give it a go. And Dean was like, his, his heart was in the right place. Like he, his kids were, he's got four kids. They're all successful. Two kids played in the NHL, Mm. super successful. Dean could have just retired. He didn't want to, like he he was doing it because he wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. He wasn't doing it because he wanted to make a bunch of money. He was doing it because it seemed like something fun. Um, Yeah frankly. And that's, and that's why I was doing it because I could have just kept my job at the cancer center and, and had a pension, you know, and, and made more money than I made more money at the cancer center than I have doing this thing up until a month ago. Like now, now we're starting to do well, you know, like, but we were in it, we were in it to grow something and do something cool. So, so we started like, then we, we had some employees in my basement um, while I'm still really? at the cancer center. So like, so I'd go to work and we had a, we had two people and then intern down here and, uh, and they would work away. And on the weekends and nights, I would, I would you know, catch up on what they'd been doing or like call them from work. And, and then this is 2018. So we had formed a company, but I'm still at the cancer center. And then, we were pregnant. My wife was pregnant and January of 2019, uh, I get a phone call. I'm in labor. I go see my boss at the cancer center. I'm like, she's in labor. Like I, I, I think I got to go. And she's like, go, you got to go. Yes. You absolutely have to go. And that was the last day I worked at the cancer center. That was the last day I 
went to the cancer center. I didn't right? even go back to get anything. Yeah. It was like, this is my shot. Like I've got, you know, a couple months or whatever of paternity and I'm going to make a go of it. And, and never went back. It was like, if, if I go back to the cancer center, that means that this has been a total failure. So you and Dina decided we're going to do this. Um, were you still making the product in your basement or did you decide, okay, yeah. we need you really for how long? No, we're still, we were still in my basement till like 2020. Um, wow. Or too late in 2020. We're still down here for like another year and a half or so. So I had like a baby and a like kid upstairs and a wife and then four employees and we're like machining things and FedEx coming, dropping, (laughs) dropping stuff off. Yeah. Uh, We were like, we, we renovated the house, the door at the top of the stairs because it was too narrow to get a bike out. So we made it wide enough to carry a bike out. We would have like trucks coming to the front to the driveway and we're kind of on a hill. So in the middle of winter and like, they're like sliding down the hill to, we're trying to like lift giant crates into trucks and we're making crates on the deck. And Ashley had been forced to tolerate enough. And yeah. I was like, we got to find a place or, yeah. or I'm going to be a single guy making bikes. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're selling bikes legitimately at this time. You're not, um, it's not yeah. ones and twos anymore. You're, you've got, you no, found a market was, by the sounds of it. Yeah, it was still ones and twos, but there was a lot of interest because there was no, like, nothing did what this did. Right. So, like, so there was no market for it because no one had one. Um, so it was, it was a long, it was a long time of convincing people that this is something that they wanted or needed in their life. So we were still doing like one or two bikes a month at this point. Okay. But at 15 grand US a bike, so like 20 Canadian, two bikes a month, that's 40 grand, three bikes a month is 60 grand. You've got no rent, no like, so it was a business, like it was, mm. it was working. And then we, when we moved out into the shop we're in now, we we're like looking around for, at the, the bay where the real estate agent was showing us. And it was like, it's a little big. Like, I don't know if we need it all, blah, blah, cut to like six months later. And we're trying to get more space and more space. And, um, we just took over the other side this month and we'll have the entire building in 10 more, in nine more months. No way. Um, so yeah, so we've, it's just been growing and growing and growing. And tell me where the name Bowhead came from. It has two origin stories. One is that like I always liked the I like the bowhead whale. Oh yeah. It's the longest lived lived mammal in the world. So yeah. there's whales that are I think they think they could be in between two and three hundred years old. Um a way bowhead whale can live. Which from like the the persistent side of me, it was like just this thing just keeps on going and it slow and steady pace through life there's if you look at the wikipedia there's one they aged one because it died on the shore somewhere and they you know cut it open and it had like a harpoon from like 200 years ago in it that's how they knew how old this one was because really it had this ancient harpoon sitting in it uh and then the other 
reason, which is the more well-known reason would be the, the head of the Bow River. So I broke my oh, back yeah. at Sunshine, which would be the headwaters for the Bow River and the mountains that we endeavor to play in the from the head of the Bow River. And then I live off the Bow River and Bowhead is in Bowness off the Bow River. So it's the head of the Bow. Yeah, cool. Cool. Mm-hmm. You said before you were you're not a salesperson. You're the product. Yeah. Who who takes care of the sales and how do those come to you? Dean. Dean sells Dean, everything. Eh? Dean sells. Yep. Yeah. He is uh still like we've got some younger people involved and some dealers internationally and everybody just tries to get a fraction of the sales that Dean does. I don't know. He's just, uh, he's just born to sell. Uh, but I am a salesperson in the context that like I can sell the dream. I can sell the dream like nobody's business. Mm. Tell me about the Shrams, the Shimanos, the, you know, the, the, the Fox, the rock shocks and all that. Yeah. Um, do they, um, are they accommodating and, um, mm-hmm. and and do things custom for you guys, or are you reliant on standard parts? Yeah, no, not cause yet. Yeah, nothing custom, um, and that would be that would be by design on our end, like yeah, literally by design. That you don't want to be customs expensive and mm. difficult, and and if you make it standard, then you get to piggyback on all the R and D that they've been doing for decades. Yeah. Um, but we do get, we get really good service. We're just a really good story. Like you could have, you're from that industry. You could have the 12th best downhiller ride by your front window right now and maybe not notice, probably not notice who they mm-hmm. were, just someone on a bike. But if someone rode by on our bike, your front window right now, you would notice. Mm-hmm. You'd be like, oh, fuck, mm-hmm. that's cool. So that's what we sell them is like a cool story that people are interested in that's unique. A video just came out, uh, Nothing's for Free. It's like the history of free ride mountain biking. You know, two takeaways from watching that. It came out this last week. One was that like, you know, we're, we're on bike one. We have three different bikes, three different models, but each one is in its first iteration. So like we have such a long way to go to make these things way better. You know, people are just starting to race them. Like if you parallel it to the growth of mountain biking, we're still at the Gary Fisher days, you know, like, like we're going to laugh about how crappy these bikes were in five years, I hope. But then also watching that video and it's like, it's, it's all of the people who started free ride. You finish watching the movie and you're like, 95% of people in that movie know who we are. It's pretty crazy. How does that feel? It feels pretty cool actually cuz I I, I was there was a there was a part of me that was just like a mountain bike kid that wanted to have a mountain bike company and now I got one. And yeah. and you're and that you fought so hard doing like crappy Instagram videos on the, the hill outside of the cancer center like skidding down grass and traversing and trying to show this thing work and now you have you know the the titans of that industry don't call it an adaptive mountain bike they call it a bowhead yeah like they don't even know there's another company out there and it feels pretty cool that they like and and they pick up the phone and they call and and that in that video Tarek rode a bucket bike and like it was his 
so he had broken his back and now he's back and he's going to go ride this bucket bike. It's like a mountain bike with a adapted seat on it. And whose bike was it? It was my bike. I made that bike, but they, people come to me from all around the world to, to solve their problems in this industry. And I'm not in the movie and I'm not mentioned and I don't need to be, but it's like, we're the end. We're the, we're where all the, all lines lead to us at Bowhead now. You know, the, the bike industry is always talking about how do we get more people into cycling? How do we not, not preach to the choir? And it's a bit mm-hmm. of a strange thing when you think about your market, because the last thing anyone wants is more people needing your product, I suppose. Right. Yeah. But at the mm-hmm. same time, you know, at some point, how, how do you, how do you grow that into, or, or does it need to be, is it a more of a, you know, we're going to go deep with the con- the, the customers we have rather than wide. How do you think about that? No, I th- you go wide because you want like, so today I, before this call, I was, I was in Bragg Creek hiking with my family with a four-year-old and nine-year-old and my wife, uh, no helmet. Cause I'm going two kilometers an hour. Like, so I wasn't biking, but I couldn't have done that without this bike. You're on um, uh, a bowhead reach or um, yeah, yeah. Uh, RX so RX. Yeah. It's cranking. Yep. So, so it's the, the width of like, does everyone need to become a downhill mountain biker? No. Are there thousands of people that probably will? Yeah. But there's tens of thousands of people who want to go for a walk with their family. Yeah. 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 Huh. Hundreds of thousands. You know, and I couldn't, there's no way the terrain I was on today, there's no other way to do it other than a bowhead, but that's a green run compared to what you can actually ride. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're talking about grassy lakes and that's, you know, I, I've done that many times and it's kind of, you do it with the kids type of hike, right? Yeah. But, um, to imagine how you would have had to get up there. Yeah. That totally that like I had to be 90% of as fit as I've ever been just to get two kilometers up that trail. Yeah. But on the bike, like it's nothing. Now I did like, I did Healy pass, like a hike up to a pass near sunshine village a couple weeks ago. Cause you can like, now you can just, you can go do these things. Like it is, it's a hike, it's a hiking tool. It's a biking tool. It's a walk your dog tool. It's a commute to school and back. It's, commute to work and back it's it is it's more than a bike certainly it's it's a lot of freedom um and so that's why it's much wider and that's also i think what makes it exciting for like we're the only adaptive bike that can use a bosch motor like bosch has to okay you and and they're all over it we have a great partner in bosch we have a a huge company that sells probably millions of motors a year that knows who we are and we buy 250 motors a year from them. Do, do you have to rely on your story to get, be an OEM customer of these, the Shimano's and Bosch's and that? Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And that's unique to, that's a, that's unique to us in the adaptive space. So a wheelchair company, for example, like Permobile is a, a giant hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollar wheelchair company. And we have more Instagram followers than they do. Like, it's just unique that we took on a persona like, like a sporting company would. 
Like we put effort into our content. We put effort into our customers. We put effort into our story and how we tell it. And that's just, it's like something that's never been done in the adaptive space. Never been done well. Well, you're appealing to people's passions, I imagine, whatever, whether it's hiking or biking or skiing or, oh, no, you don't do any ski park, yeah. do you? No. No. Yet. No. Is we, that something I, you're considering? Maybe down the road, I think right now. So we've got the three bikes and now we're not splitting the company per se, but persona wise, we're doing caster wheels, like little front wheels for wheelchairs that are super cool with like a, a hubless design that doesn't pick up hair because um, little <laughs> caster wheels pick up hair from the ground. It's really gross. Um, a rear wheel that's super unique to a wheelchair, whereas everything else has been bike rims with a hand rim on it. And then the wheelchair. Um, so, and the, and the business plan for this is, as, you know, can be summed up in like a really simple sentence that not everyone in a wheelchair has a bike but everyone in a wheelchair has a wheelchair. So it's a way bigger market. Do you wish you could grow faster or are you quite happy that you are put under constraints? Faster, 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 faster. Yeah. Yeah. Would you go out and raise some money to, to be able to enable that? I don't know. So that's where, I don't know. Uh, We've, we've done really well in protecting. It depends. So, so, We've protected ourselves well. We've we've taken no money. We mm-hmm. are we are Bowhead owned and operated by the people who work there. And uh and we do whatever we want and nobody tells us what to do. And everybody involved cares deeply about the customer and about the product. So when I say grow faster, it's just under the right situation, staying a hundred percent in control of doing what we want to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's important because the, the I've had investors before and had other people involved that weren't aligned with what I wanted to do. So the growth isn't around like financial gains. It's around more and more and more equipment that's better for other, for myself and for others. And to like, to really buck a system that, I think is garbage. <laughs> when you speak of um, growth, um, and you, you mentioned earlier the word stigma, mm-hmm. is there a stigma attached that prohibits or maybe limits uh, your your attracting of good employees, or has that never been a no. problem? No, I'd say like the stigma. The stigma would be to sell like a bike to an able-bodied person, but the stigma, I'd say, to a certainly to a disabled person, the stigma is gone. Like we removed that with the bowhead bikes. Like it's a cool bike yeah, period to be celebrated. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We like you go out, people who have our bikes, have our shirts, have our hats. Like they're proud to be bowhead. It sounds like you're, you know, not only, connecting a community but building a community uh from from mm-hmm. nothing isn't it like and that's so much more powerful in terms of your contribution as a business and a brand isn't it how does that feel? yeah well and it really good yeah really good like i've met I, I have a bunch of good friends now because of this and then and like and we've created employment opportunities for people that that wouldn't have have existed before too like 
people come to us for jobs and, and we can give them jobs. Yeah. Um, and they, and, and I'm like, we were talking, I'm terrible at customer service. And I don't need to be good at customer service. We have like awesome people that mm. is their community and they want to serve it. And, mm. and, and they're good at it. Um, and it, yeah, so it, it does feel good. And that, and then when you're looking at future business opportunities, you realize that it was strategic to be, to remove a stigma and be a community because like I said, people wear bowhead shirts and bowhead hats and they don't have permobile shirts and hats, at least not that anyone would wear. So when we do come out with a chair, we're going to have 500 people around the planet that are really excited about it uh-huh. and not, not in a way like, like, Oh, that's a chair I have to get, or like I have to have a wheelchair. So I may as well have that one. They're like, fuck yeah, I cannot wait for Bowhead to come out with a chair so that I can like raise my middle finger to everyone else who makes a chair, you know, and be like, finally, like someone's making one for me. That's awesome. When you went through, you know, Marvel icon, could you ever have imagined what you've done and where you are now back then? No, no, not at all. No way. Cause it was never, it was never this fun. So Dean, Dean came from hockey, right? Uh-huh. And uh, like he played University of Michigan, two of his kids in the NHL, like he's a hockey guy. Yeah. And uh, and when we were starting Bowhead, he's like, you know, whether JP bought a bike or Seth or, you know, this person, that person, they're like team Bowhead, like part of team Bowhead now. And then when we hired people at like at work, like Tatiana, part of team Bowhead, Rogers, team Bowhead. Mm. And complimentary talents and all this. And I was like, and I was always a solo sport person and I'd, I'd been on teams as a kid, but I'd never been part of a team, I would say. Yeah. And, uh, and Dean sold me on team. I'm, I'm all in like, right. Like we have a sport development team. We have a community. We've got everyone at work stays on Friday for beers. Like no one feels marginalized. No one is there just as filler. Like everybody knows the program. and from Marvel to Icon to Striker, like it was, the goal was money. The goal Mm. was a product to make money. And this goal is like, like we have a saying like bikes out money in, and it has nothing to do with, ironically has nothing to do with the money. And like, it's that if we don't get bikes out, we don't get money in, we can't get more parts. We can't design new stuff little jack with cerebral palsy in oregon can't get an awesome bike like if Mm. we don't if we don't do our jobs and we don't love it and care about it then they don't get their bikes and we don't grow and we don't get new bikes and like then they're stuck with the gary fisher bike from the 90s yeah yeah. we don't want them to have the gary fisher bike we want to have the new santa cruz like like our evolution so like bikes out money in just means like we need to keep moving forward you're making a change aren't you it's not just it's not just a business it's making a change it is yeah and and then and that's what's kind of excited that's why i think the whole company is excited about the wheelchair even though like none of them are really excited about wheelchairs like all of them understand biking because lots of them are bike riders and you know everyone understands bike riding and everyone can get behind the passion behind it but i think now that they've 
they've all met. Like if we have 500 people in bikes, we have 490 of them use wheelchairs. Mm. And so like, they've gotten to know these people and they've gotten to see them live their lives. And they're like, they're as excited about making, making something as cool as the bike in a wheelchair form. Like that everyone's kind of addicted to the change. I hope you enjoyed this inspiring episode about another side of cycling that most of us probably barely know exists and even thrives. But the business journey and lessons it heeds are exactly the same as any other. As you just heard, Bowhead is only about five years old, but everything it took Christian to get here was 20 years in the making. If you want some visuals of what people are doing on their Bowheads and how it's changing lives, go to their Instagram account, at Bowhead Corp. I'll put some imagery up in our show notes on the website as well. I'd like to thank my brother-in-law, Dr. David Legg, for introducing me to Christian and Bowhead and also helping organize this podcast and being part of it. Dave is a professor of sports management at Mount Royal University in Calgary and has also dedicated much of his life and career to disability and inclusive sport. He's been the president of the Canadian Paralympic Committee and countless other initiatives. And without his help, I couldn't have done this episode. This is Wade Wallace, and you're listening to another Overnight Success. If you like what you hear and want to ensure that it continues, please go to escapecollective.com slash join to become a member, as this is 100% supported by our members. Thank you. Thank you.